Hey, church, take your Bibles. All right, go ahead and turn to uh, Acts chapter 16 is where we're going to be. We're in a series called The Year of the Bible. And if you hadn't already availed yourself to the resources online, I mean, just go to builtmorechurch.com slash Bible, and you can get all these free resources, uh, all this stuff to do with your kids. If you're a parent, all this stuff to do with your spouse. Uh, if, uh, if you're married, all this stuff to do with your uh, girlfriend or boyfriend. Just kidding. There's not, nothing like that on there. But... Um, Great, great uh, resources there, all free. Go on there and get that. And I want to say hello to the other campuses around beautiful uh, Western North Carolina. We're reminded every time this time of year how beautiful of a place we get to live in because we get to see all those license plates from all the other places wanting to come here where we live. So we're grateful uh, for uh, not only living here, but also what God has done around uh, the 828 uh, over this last decade or so. And we got some folks watching online. We have got uh, Brandy from uh, Mills River. I know exactly where that is. All right, we've got uh, Dennis and Darlene from Cambridge, Maryland, and we've also got Carl, Stella, Lily, and Jaden tuning in and have been tuning in for a good while now from Singapore. So thrilled that you guys are uh, thrilled that you guys are here. Let me also go ahead. And... Let me give you one more shot at that. Okay, we got them tuning in from Singapore. There you go. Good job. Good job on that. Hey, uh, and also thank you to all the volunteers that help with all the Heroes uh, Week. Uh, we've got uh, thousands of letters going out to them this week and tons of, you know, <laughs> we carbolicious last week with ice cream trucks and all these goodies. To, but thank you again if you're a fireman, policeman, frontline worker. Uh, you are a hero. We hope you felt honored and blessed. You deserve it. And so thank you so much for all the volunteers and your generosity that made that happen. I'm going to give you a second thing as well. It's coming up here and you'll hear a lot about it in the weeks ahead. But uh, and we've done this before, but it's going to be actually larger and bigger than we've ever done before. You know, as we get toward Thanksgiving and Christmas, uh, we usually have done something called the Big Give, all right? And so the Big Give is basically big in the sense of how do we show big generosity toward the communities in which we serve. And in the past, we've done, uh, you know, we've done 1,000 families, and I think it went up to 2,000 families uh, that we tried to bless. And let me just say, because of your generosity, uh, the details will be coming out soon. We'll be able to do a lot bigger Big Give coming up uh, probably right after Thanksgiving and the first part of December as we bless thousands of families around uh, WMC in a, in a variety of ways, all right? And that's really what we see in the book of Acts. We see people declaring the gospel and demonstrating uh, the gospel, and that's how Christianity became the largest movement in all of human history. And whether you know it or not, it's not just the largest movement in all of human history, it's also the most, most diverse movement in all of human history. Matter of fact, you can look at other religions or other movements, if you will, and they're all dominated by, dominated typically by one part of the world. Like Islam is almost always in the Middle East. Hinduism is almost always focused or centered around India. Uh, Buddhism is almost uh, the strongest part is there in Asia. But when you look at Christianity, while it did start in Jerusalem and it started in the Middle East, as we'll see, it exploded out from that and then went out to like the Mediterranean rim and then went over to Europe and then North America and then Africa and then Asia and it just, and it just exploded. And what you see in the book of Acts is the recording of how that happened. And it all started with 12 guys on a hillside with no power, no money, no representation politically, none of that stuff at all. All they had was a deep conviction that Jesus had paid the sin debt of the world that he rose miraculously from the grave, and then he gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit to empower them to do what they could not do on their own. And then here we are 2,000 years later in 
Western North Carolina or Singapore or Mills River or wherever it is, and we are part of that movement. And so here's what has happened in, uh, in Acts chapter 8, in Acts chapter 8, persecution came on the church. And up until Acts chapter 8, the church was primarily centered around Jerusalem. And unfortunately, instead of going out and doing what the Lord had told them to do and spread the gospel, they kind of centered around Jerusalem. But then because of persecution, they just spread out. And where Christians go, that's where the gospel goes. And so a few weeks ago, what we did is we, uh, we said, hey, put a dot on the place where you live or where you work or where you play. And a bunch of you, and this is just a small representation on this map, it's just that you put a dot and say, you know what, I live in Mills River. I live in Franklin, North Carolina. I live in West Asheville, all right? I live there. That's my place. That's the place God has put me. And so when you look at that, it spreads all over. And just like the gospel spread from Acts 8, even through pressure, all of a sudden it is spreading in Western North Carolina as well. And here's what we're going to do. As we're kind of rebooting from the whole last 17, 18 months, the text today, we're going to see three very, very different people who get converted. Three very different people who become part of the movement. That's what this is called. The movement continues. If you remember two years ago, months before the pandemic hit that we had no idea was coming, we did a series called Be the Movement, Be the Movement. And then the pandemic hit and we adjusted and all these kind of things. But as we reboot and as God would sovereignly have us in this part of the year of the Bible, we want to realize, you know what, the movement still continues. The book of Acts only has 28 chapters, but in some ways you and I are supposed to be writing Acts 29. We're the ones that are supposed to be continuing the movement where we live, work, and play. And so in, Act, in Acts chapter 16, you see three different people. You see an upscale boss businesswoman who had a lot of stuff, had a lot of wealth, multiple homes, and yet something besides all the wealth, besides getting all the stuff that she was told would make her happy, there was still a hole in her soul that all that stuff could not fill and God converts her. Then you see a person totally different. You see a person who is in bondage. You see a person who's enslaved. You see a person who's got wounds, and God converts her. And then you see a person who's a blue-collar, hard-nosed, F-150 driving kind of guy, and he gets converted as well. And not only are they true people, not only are they true individuals, and Dr. Luke doesn't just put it down just to tell us, hey, these are individuals. He's also showing us these are different types. Because sometimes I hear this. Sometimes I hear like, you know what? I'm not the Christian type. And I've heard that. I've heard that a hundred times. You know, I might be going through the gospel with somebody. You know, I'm just not the Christian type. I'm just not the Christian type. And loved one, you have to understand, there is no Christian type, all right? There is no Christian type. When you talk about the gospel, it's for all mankind, the rich, the poor, the black, the white, young, old, conservative, liberal, religious, irreligious, good families, broken families. We all have one problem, and that's sin, and we all have one hope of salvation, and that is Jesus. And that's what these three people show us. And so there's kind of two applications today. Number one is, for a lot of us, that this is you. You'll see yourself in one of these three people. You're like, that's me, or that's close to me, or that's who I was. And the second application would be this. If you're a Christ follower already, this reminds you that people right around you fit into these categories as well. Now, they're not clean. They're not, they don't, it's not that they don't overlap. They do. But they do give us three types of people, and either that's where you are or that's who you're around. So let me read through the text. It's Acts chapter 16. I'm going to read the, about the first person, person number one. 
about a movement for all people, starting in verse 13. And it says, on the Sabbath day, we went outside, we as Paul and Silas, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. That's like really expensive kind of stuff. This is uh, the Gucci stuff. This is the, you know, this is the Rolex watches. That's who this is. Who was also a worshiper of God. And look what happened. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Conversion number one. Conversation number one. Person number one. Let's just call this the spiritual. This is the spiritual person. This is the religious person. And the main idea of connecting with that person is typically through the head. It's through the intellect. When you look at this, Lydia is a wealthy businesswoman, seller of purple goods. Again, that's high-end. She's a fashionista, runway type. She's got it all together. The Bible says she has more than one home. She's got one. As a matter of fact, the home she's got is so big that the early church got to actually meet in her home. And so she's making trips to Europe. She's that person. And so when you do it today, what is this person? This person is the one that has the, the lake house, the country club membership, has these, uh, the trips they take all the time, has, uh, replaces the countertops every year or so just because they're kind of looking a little bit dull, has all of that stuff. This lady is a CEO. She is like a boss. That's who she is. And yet, she's also religious. She's also a little bit spiritual as well. It says that they went to the place of prayer. Now, place of prayer is an interesting little phrase there. Because normally what Paul would do is he'd go to the temple and preach, but here he says he's going to go to a place of prayer. Now, a place of prayer usually was done in a city that didn't have enough, in that day and time, enough men to make up a synagogue, enough Jewish men to make up a synagogue. And whether that was the case or these ladies just wanted to have a Bible study, here's what they would do. These ladies went outside and they had this, they'd read the Jewish scriptures, and as they read the Jewish scriptures, they would also pray. And so this would be kind of like, you know, you're going to like a Priscilla Shire or a Bethmore Bible study and you're just kind of going to this Bible study. It's not because you're a Christ follower yet, but you are curious. You are leaning in. You are thinking about it. You're like, you know what? That's interesting to me. There's something that these Jews have. They are on to something. And maybe God was pricking her heart by saying, you know what? Is this it? Is this it? The merry-go-round of the American dream. You know what? I get up and I go make some deals and I make some money and then I get to go out to a sweet restaurant and then I get in my sweet car and go to my awesome home, watch my awesome big screen. I go to bed and I do the same thing over again. And finally, she's like, is this it? Is this all I have got? And how does she get saved? She gets saved through basically religious discourse, just talking back and forth. Now, okay, Bible right here, and it doesn't tell us, so I'm speculating a minute here. So we don't know what Paul exactly told her. We don't know. We know that she would have been outside, they would be praying, and they were looking at the Jewish scriptures, which all they had was the Old Testament. So we don't know what exactly he said, but we know he told, the, told her the gospel and probably used the Old Testament to show her the gospel, which, by the way, that's one of the big things in this whole year of the Bible. Hey, Dad, so that you can understand, you know what, those Ten Commandments aren't just for you to try to be a good guy. It's actually just supposed to be a map and a mirror. And maybe that's what he was talking about to Lydia. Maybe he takes open Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and it says, listen, there, you see how there's, it's like, see that prophecy about there'll be somebody that gets nipped on the heel, but it'll crush the serpent's head? 
that person is Jesus. And then maybe you go to Exodus and they look at the Ten Commandments. And he tells her, listen, hey, Lydia, the Ten Commandments is both a map on how to live and a mirror on the fact that you can't live that way. It's a map to say, you know what, this is God's way for human flourishing, but it's a mirror. And you know what, you've broken every single one of those Ten Commandments. Then they flip over and they go to the book of Leviticus and all those animals that get killed. It's like, you know why all those animals are getting killed? Because they are substituting in the place of their sin. God is introducing the fact that he is holy and sin is costly. And every time you sin, he's saying, this is the equation. This is what it costs. Then maybe he flips over a few more books to like Isaiah 53 verse 5 that says, you know what? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It was the will of the Father to crush him. He's like, Lydia, guess what? Right after, you know, just not too long ago, John the Baptist pops on the scene and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's Jesus. And all the scriptures simply say is this. It says the Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart. Can I just tell you, that's super, super encouraging for me. Because listen, I do work, I work hard at this deal. I mean, you understand that? I work, I work hard. I, I try to get, some, I don't want to be just kind of giving you something that in some book. I'm trying to, I spend about 20 hours a week trying to give you food, spiritual food to eat every single week. That's, what I, that's 20 hours of my week right off the bat. But what I know is this, what I know is this. All I can do is put the groceries out. That's all I can do. The Lord is the one that has to open your heart. He's the one that has to do it. And the reason I know that, not just because Scripture says that, but half, a lot of times you'll show up in the lobby. And guys especially, here's what I've heard. I've heard this a thousand times. My wife called you this week, didn't she? My, my wife called you this week. She told you what was going on. It's like, bro, I don't even know. I don't know you. If, I don't even know you. She didn't call. All I know is I'm just going to preach the word. And then what God does is God opens your heart and starts to put and deposit the word into your heart. That's what God does. God's the teacher. All I do, I'm the mailman, all right? I'm just delivering the message, but he has to apply it. And he says the Lord did that. It's the Lord that invites. It's the Lord that saves. And it says he calls her to pay attention. I love this. He calls her to pay attention. The word pay attention there, the phrase pay attention there, it's actually one word that is used for addiction. And this way it's used in a good way. It's the idea of craving something. And I just want to tell you that is the most awesome thing to watch. It's the most awesome thing to watch. The idea is that Lydia was like leaning in and leaning in and all of a sudden, you know, she's already religious. She's already religious and she's starting to hear the gospel and she's like, this is amazing. This is amazing. All those stories and all those morals are really pointing to the gospel. And it says the Lord opened her heart, opened her, and she craved it. And that's the way some of y'all have been as well. It's awesome. It is amazing to see people who are religious actually get the gospel. Because religion is so, it's such bondage, all right? It really is. Because religion says you've got to do this stuff for God. You've got to act this way in order for God to actually accept you or be impressed with you. And then people from all these different religions, even church backgrounds, will come into our church and we'll just kind of go over the gospel that it's not about what you do, it's about what Jesus has done. And all of a sudden they, they're like, no, you're telling me my shame can be gone? You're telling me my condemnation can be gone? You're telling me I can be a son or daughter, not because I'm a good person, but because Jesus was a perfect person? That's what you're telling me? And then that's, what, that's where Lydia is. Lydia's got all this stuff, everything together, and... Um, and, that, and that's, that's what happens with her. And, and, and you got to understand, you're around a lot of people that way. Hey, Biltmore Church, you are around people like that all the time. 
If you're not one of those, then you're around those people all the time, spiritual people leaning in. What do you do? How do you, how do you reach out? How do you minister to them? I mean, there's like, these are, this is like anybody can do this. I mean, it's just like an, invite them to, invite them to watch a webcast. You know the family in Singapore, you know how that began? You know how that began? It wasn't because they were watching like Singapore TV and found about some church in Western North Carolina. That's not. The short story, I heard it last week in the lobby. The short story is two years ago, one of our leaders who's now actually, he was a leader here at Arden and then now he's a leader at Brevard named Brian Johnson. He invited a Jaeger family simply to come to church with him. That's how it began two years ago. And they came to church with him before the pandemic started and then since the pandemic began. And then all of a sudden they're inviting. They've got a daughter, uh, a daughter-in-law and son in Singapore. Hey, why don't you watch this? Why don't you watch this? We're kind of understanding the Bible. And then the 16-year-old begins to be open. And then the 10-year-old begins to be open. And how did it all begin? It all began on God using a person named Brian to invite a family to come to a church. And you don't know where you are in that link in the chain. And so anybody can do this. It's just invite. Just invite them to watch. Invite them to invite the, Come, come to an on-site uh, service. Hey, when you get baptized, invite somebody to come watch your baptism. How awesome is that? Hey, would you come? I mean, who would say no to that? You got to be, I mean, you got to be like bad to say, I will not come to your baptism. I mean, really? Come to my baptism. All right, come to my baptism. That's amazing. Uh, come to my connect group. You're like, I don't understand. Uh, well, start one with them. Start one with them. This is a person that already kind of wants to know what's in here. Start a Bible study. Hey, let's read a chapter and then talk about it when we're, uh, you know, in fifth period or whatever we are. Uh, get a gospel-centered book. The books that we recommend, just get a gospel-centered book. Read it with them. Answer their hard questions. There's another one. They've got some questions. You know, how can there only be one world religion? And what about all the suffering? And how does a good God allow somebody to go to hell? And all those very difficult questions. Don't ignore them. Answer them. All right, I usually recommend Keller's book. There's another book I came across called Confronting Christianity by a lady named Rebecca McLaughlin. Very, very, very good as well. Just realize that that person is right there. Second person, the opposite of Lydia. Socioeconomically, morally, in every way, the second person is different. Verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So just keep, she's a spiritual and an economic slave. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said, which by the way, real quick, you know what's awesome when you see little comments like this? Because if you were like making stuff up, you would not put that in there, correct? You would not, you would say Paul being amazingly compassionate or Paul being incredibly empathetic or Paul being the godly man that he was, but it's no, it's like Paul being greatly ticked off. That's what it is. Being greatly bothered, being greatly irritated. What does he do? turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Person number one, the spiritual, the religious person. Person number two is the wounded person. Now I know everybody listening has wounds. 
Everybody, nobody gets, you don't get to audit that class. You're going to get wounded. Some are wounded more deeply than others, for sure. But this is the wounded, and it's not as much about getting her head answers. It's about getting her heart cared for. So she's the opposite again in every way with Lydia. She's abused. She's addicted. She's probably, scholars say, probably in her mid-teens. And what's interesting is she is both attracted to the faith and antagonistic toward the faith. Which if you, if you come to faith in Christ late, you probably can relate to that. I was 17, and there was at least four or five years where I was both attracted to the faith and antagonistic toward the faith. I was attracted to the faith, as I mentioned last week, when I saw what the faith was doing to my brothers and how they were changing and how they were being actually more gentle and more winsome and more patient with me. But I was also antagonistic toward the faith. And every hypocrite that I possibly saw at the First Baptist Church in Wichita Falls, I'm like, you know what? That's it. That's another reason. That's another reason. I act better than that hypocrite. So I was both antagonistic toward and attracted to. And that's where you can be when you have some wounds. And, uh, it, and, and that's, that's, that's not just out there, loved ones. That's in the church. I know we come in here, and we come in here, and sometimes we come in here late, and sit down, Junior, and put a smile on your face, and just understand, bondage is a very real deal. Now, your bondage might look different than the slave girl, who you don't even know her name, but it might be, look different for you. Uh, your heart is in bondage, and you walked in this place, or you're watching online, and you're like, I've gone too far. I've gone too far. God's given up on me. I mean, I am, a, I am too pitiful for God to even notice me. And loved one, what you have to understand is both the alarm clock and the empty tomb are empirical evidence that God is not done with you. He is not done with you. The fact that you got up this morning, the fact that the tomb is empty, means he is not done with you. Now, it doesn't mean we go easy on sin. Sin does matter. Sin does matter. But the audacity to say that my sin is too big or I've been gone too far is like your sin compared to an awesome, massive Savior is, is minuscule. You can't out the cross is what we always talk about. Now, your bondage is a bunch of different stuff. Your bondage might be in the bondage of approval. I mean, you just act a certain way. You buy certain stuff just so people will like you. That's your bondage of approval. Some of you have the bondage of addiction. There's an addiction that you have, chemical, porn, something like that, and you have tried to break away and you can't break away, and every time you fall, you're so, oh, just, God is going to just get rid of me. And some of you are just, you're in bondage to depression. You really are, especially over the last 17 months. There has been more, I'm saying this in a loving way, Come back. I just say, the last 17 months, some of you are acting crazier than normal. Seriously, you are. You're acting crazier than normal. But I am too. I am too. I've told you my wedge story a few weeks ago. You all have broken some wedges as well. You're not act, we're not acting the same. Part of it's isolation. A part of it's a, emotional. All that stuff is going on, but that is bondage. You're depressed. Some of you are bitter. Some of you just, you're, it's condemnation. Condemnation. I'm and you just got to go back. I'm not defined by my past. I'm not defined by what people say. I'm defined by who God says I am. And look at the text. It says that she was crying out. She was crying out. And that's, it's an onomatopoeic word that actually is the word for like a crow. You see those crows that sit up on there and just, ah, God, you know, it's like just, they mock you. They just mock you. 
They mock you. It's just they make noise, they make noise, they make noise. It's like they're laughing at you. And that's what she's saying. She's that, the idea of crying out. And here's what I would say this. In the Gospels, I cannot find a place where somebody cried out for mercy from Jesus and Jesus didn't give it to them. Isn't that amazing? Now, there's a bunch of times where he talked about religious people. It's like, you know what? You guys are not even open. But when you humbled yourself and cried out for mercy, he gave mercy. And for us, um, how are you going to reach that person? How are you going to reach that person with deep, deep wounds? Can I just say that person is not going to be reached by, uh, you know, coming to some awesome event like Fall Festival? That's great for the first one. It's great for, that's great for the spiritual person, the one leaning in. Let me just tell you, this, this, this young lady is not leaning in at all. She's not open to come to some Bethmore Bible study. She's probably not even open with your invite to come to the church. The way you're going to reach that person is being involved with that person by actually having a heart that says, you know what, I'm going to run toward the mess because God ran toward my mess. That's got to be the mentality. I'm going to run toward the mess because God ran toward my mess. Now, I understand. I understand. I understand that is messy. It is messy. And if all you do is say, I'm going to be an empathetic person, and you try to work yourself up, that'll last for like six months based on your personality. But if your empathy and your compassion is based on the empathy and the compassion that God showed you in the gospel... That's a, that's a never-ending fountain. You just go back to that over and over and over again. And then you get involved with stuff like the prison ministry, Western Carolina Rescue Mission, Mountain Area Pregnancy Services. That's why you go help out with Celebrate Recovery. That's why you support foster care. That's why when we do the big give, when you do the big give, you're not like, that's for somebody else, that's for me. That's why you don't sit there and sneak out when we have Compassion Sunday and we've got all these compassion kids that need sponsorships and you don't walk out thinking, well, that's not for me. When you understand God had compassion on you, then you run toward that. And we've got to run toward that. And here's the one, uh, and by the way, you're going to see that not just in ministries, you're going to see that at your work. You'll see that at your school. You'll see that at your work. What does that look like at your work? At your work, what it looks like is that uh, person whose spouse just walked out on them and she's over there crying. What am I going to do? I'm a single mom with, with two teenage kids. And instead of like, oh, I'm going to go over here and make copies, you're not doing that. You actually say, you know, can I, can I pray for you? Can I pray for you? Not in a self-righteous, can I pray for you? I got a hotline to have. Just, you know what, I'm so sorry. So sorry. You know what it looks like? I hadn't used this in a long, long time, but one of the proudest moments I've ever had as a dad is when we, were, when we moved here, my boys were in just starting high school or in high school, and uh, I can't remember who it was. Some, somebody came up to me at church and said, I want to tell you what your boy did today in school. He said that was at the cafeteria because I think his son had come home and told him because this, this is what it looks like. He said, you know what? There was a new kid in town because here's the idea. A year before that, he was the new kid in town. And he understood what empathy and compassion was like and what it was like when it was showed to him. So what did he do? The new kid's sitting by himself in the cafeteria. The new kid's the one people are making fun of because we don't talk like that in the South. You're from, where are you from? Michigan? Where are you from? What did he do? He got, his ta- he got his tray, got his tray, got up from the cool kid's table, and went over and sat with the new kid. You know what that is? That is just going toward the wounded. And you're going to have an opportunity this week, I promise. The question is, are you going to walk away from it? Are you going to walk toward it? Here's the last one. Start in verse 23. So uh, they didn't like it a whole bunch when this, when the, uh, 
lady gets saved and all of a sudden their money is going to dry up. So verse 23, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks, which by the way, we don't know if he was told to do this or he just kind of had like an anger issue and wanted to put them in the worst place. You know what I'm saying? Because most jailers were actually former military guys. They were usually retired Roman soldiers that when they retired from, the, from being a Roman soldier, they got these jail gigs and sometime, maybe you're talking about a crusty, hardened, he's seen the worst of the worst and maybe he sees these new religious guys and they say, put him in jail and whether by order or just the fact that he wanted to put the clamps down on them, he puts them in the inner dungeon. The love in the inner dungeon is what it sounds like. It's like the lowest of the lows. It's where all the excrement flows down toward them. And he puts them in stocks. Now, don't think, uh, what's that place over there in Virginia, uh, Jamestown or wherever you, you and your kids, you know, you go over there and you visit and you, hey, and you take a little picture and you, <laughs> you take it. That's not what it was. They would actually put them in the most uncomfortable position and they couldn't move. Couldn't move to go to the bathroom. They couldn't move to kind of relieve the cramping. They couldn't do any of that stuff. Keep that in mind. In about midnight, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Don't miss that. You got two believers going through hell right then. They're worshiping God and people are watching how they worship. Just a question on the floor. If somebody could go back and rewind time about 30 minutes and look at how you were worshiping in those first few songs. When you were singing, I believe, when you were singing, you know what, I believe, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. If little Scooter, your little seven-year-old, was able to watch, Dad, how did you worship? Would they say, man, my dad loves God and he's got a big God. Would they be able to look at you, Mom, and say, you know what, Mom? My mom loves Jesus. Or they look and say, you know what? They look pretty bored to me. They look at it. They're listening to them. Suddenly there's a great earthquake. The foundations of the prisons were shaken, and immediately the doors were opened. Everyone's bonds were unfastened. This is called a miracle. They're not all over the place, but they are there. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. If you lost prisoners back then, you were going to die anyway. So he's like, I'll just get a jump on it and take care of it myself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Now check the end of this story. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, this is like the greatest question in the Bible, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. In other words, you and your household, you believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his home. So what do you have? You got three people. You got the spiritual religious person. You got the wounded, the scarred person. And here you've just, you've got the cynical, skeptical person. That's who you've got here. He's a jailer. He's seen stuff that none of us want to see. It's hard, it's hard, it's hardened him. And um, about midnight, they're praying and singing the chains fall off, and then God saves this guy as he observes two things. Don't miss this. He observes two things. And again, God's the one that saves, but God uses people like you and people like me. What, is, what does he use? 
He uses two Christians, number one, that had joy in the midst of pain, painful circumstances, and number two, they showed him a lot of grace. I mean, Paul and them could have run, but what did he do? He went back. He's like, don't kill yourself. Don't kill yourself. We're here. We're here. Don't do that to yourself. So for the cynic, what does he need to see? What does she need to see? They need to see a changed life. Verse 25, it says that they were doing this, they were praying, and they were singing at midnight. Now, for you, midnight might look like the doctor's report that says the cancer's back. That could be your midnight. Your midnight could be, I'm not in love with you anymore. I found somebody else. Your midnight could be, we're closing down your branch at the company. You are no longer needed. Yours could be, I'm sorry, I invested wrong. Your retirement is now gone. And what you see in them, the first thing that came to mind, this will date, I don't even know if they make these, they probably don't because they're probably not, well, I don't know how they would be unsafe, but remember those, all right, anybody over the age of 40, I know you saw these. Remember those clowns that they were about like that tall and they had this weight in the bottom? Remember my dad gave me one of these when I was like eight. It was awesome because aggressive little boy, you know, and it had this weight and the clown was like this high and you pop, pop, and you smack him all the time. And that thing would go down and you'd feel good. But then what would happen is it would come right back up. Smack him again, it would come right back up. Smack him again, it would come right back up. And then finally what you learn is there is a weight in the bottom of that clown that no matter how hard you hit him, no matter how much you push him down, no matter how much pain you inflict on him, because of that thing in the bottom, that weight in the bottom that is heavier than what's at the top, they will bounce back. That's what Paul and Silas are. Paul and Silas are those people that's like, you know what? This is not a good time. This is not a good time. And let me just do a little bit of this whole thing about, about worship. Let me take a quick rabbit chase on worship for just a second. What are they singing? We don't know. Chances are they were singing a psalm because the Psalms was the hymn book of the Old Testament. And right at this point, the New Testament's being written, so they're probably singing a psalm. And who knows, they might have even sang the psalm that we quoted today, Psalm 27, 13, and 14. They maybe did that. They maybe said, you know what, I would have despaired if I did not believe that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And so what? Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Let your heart be encouraged. Wait on the Lord. Maybe that's what they were singing. But the bottom line is, when you and I talk about worship, when we talk about worship, we got to understand we are commanded to worship. We are commanded to worship. It's not even a suggestion or an opinion. We're commanded you see the imperatives when the Bible says things like sing with your voice or shout out loud or clap with your hands or bow on your knee or do whatever those many, many things are. Those are imperatives. Those are commands. They're saying, I want you to do that. And in our day when authenticity is king, we sometimes mix it up and say, well, I don't feel that way today. I don't feel like worshiping today. I don't feel like clapping today. And at some point in your growth as a disciple, you have to understand, your worship is not supposed to be a picture of your emotions. Your worship is not supposed to be a picture of your feelings. It is supposed to be a proclamation of your faith in what you believe. 
And so you might come in here and you're like, you know, I don't feel good and I don't feel like clapping. I don't feel like joy. And you have to make a choice. The choice is, am I actually going to anchor down like that? Am I going to anchor down? Am I going to have something bigger than my feelings that actually anchor me into something that God said is true? And it's been a terrible week, and this has happened, and that's happened. But you know what? When I lift my voice, I am making the distinct choice. It's not about my feelings. It's about my faith. It's about what God has done and who God is. And amazingly, sometimes God is so gracious that sometimes when you and I just obey that, he brings the feelings along. And that's, what's, that's what's amazing. Um, not to go down this rabbit trail either, but God has made us at least what they call dichotomous or trichotomous. And you're like, which one is it? I don't know. I'm just saying it's either body, soul, spirit, body, spirit, body, soul. Which You definitely have the physical and the spiritual that are gone together. So here's what happens when you make a choice to worship, even if you don't feel like it. So if you came in here and you start hearing that drum beat going, glorious day, and you're like, whatever, whatever. Then you hear, I believe, and it's like, I don't believe, whatever. Sometimes when you make the choice to obey God to worship, the feelings then follow. Now understand that nothing wrong with feelings, but your feelings can lie to you. Your feelings can lie to you. And so the truth has got to pull your feelings along. And sometimes it's like, I don't feel like it, but I'm going to obey God anyway. But God is so gracious, he oftentimes brings the feelings along. So when you raise your hands, when you raise your hands, sometimes if you just raise your hands, a lot of times, you know what that helps you do? It's like, you know what? I am, I'm surrendered. Okay. When you have your hands out, sometimes that's like, you know what? I'm needy. I need something. Like in that song, I believe. I mean, I've been living with that song for two weeks now. When they start talking about sing to the daughters and sing to the sons, you know what that is? I have no problem doing this. You know why? Because I'm like, I need you to do what I can't do. When you bow, if you get on your knees, sometimes we ask you to do it on your knees. What is the reason for that? It's because we want the heart to match the soul to say, I am submissive. I'm submissive. You are greater, I am lesser. So when we worship, you understand, especially when you're doing, going through a time of suffering, this is a, your worship is a witness, not just in here, but out there. And I know what some of you are saying, you're just like, uh, you know what, you don't know my circumstances, you don't know my stuff, you don't know what I've done, and if we don't worship during the trials, the trials become your identity, they become, they define you, that's what you... That's what worship is designed to break out of. Because if you're in a difficulty or a trial or a difficult season and you choose not to worship over a period of time, that trial, that sin, that bondage, that becomes who you are. That becomes who you see in the mirror. And you look at it and you're like, you know what? I am my divorce. I am my prodigal. I am my abortion. I am my failure. I, and you, you define yourself. And you're already pushing back by saying, you know what, that's the, bi- that, that's the biggest thing that happened to me. And listen to me, I'm not saying it's not a big thing. And I'm not saying it's not part of your story. It is part of your story. But if you know the gospel and you're a Christian, that is not the biggest thing that happened to you. The biggest thing that happened to you is Jesus reached down, brought you to himself, and saved you. That's the biggest thing that happened to you. So you're not your sin, all right? You're not your sin. You're not your past. You're not your divorce. You're not, your, you're not all, any of those things. The Bible says you are forgiven. You are redeemed. You are brought back. And you're not just forgiven. You are righteous. See, when I first got saved for two years, I thought all the gospel did is forgive me. And that's awesome. But that's not the whole thing. 
You're like, yeah, the Bible says, you know, you get a clean slate. You don't just get a clean slate. You get like, he not only wipes the slate clean, Jesus writes his name on the slate, on your slate. 2 Corinthians 5 says, I made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So it wasn't just the fact that he says, I'm going to forgive that. I'm going to forgive all that stuff. I am actually going to put my righteousness in your account. I mean, that's as awesome as it gets. That's why you and I worship. That's why we don't sing a bunch of songs about this is what we're going to do. We don't sing a lot of songs about that. Who cares what you're going to do? Our New Year's resolutions last like a week, all right? Every unused equipment that we have in our upstairs or our workout area that all you do is hang laundry on is a testimony that our best intentions don't last very long. So what do we sing about? We sing about the gospel. We sing about what Jesus has done. And then when we anchor into that, then amazing, st- amazing stuff happens. And that's what he said. He said, what must I do to be saved? And he said, you believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now listen, r- real quickly, three minutes. He says, believe in. Now, a lot of people around Western North Carolina confuse believe in with believe that. A lot of people around Western North Carolina believe that Jesus died on the cross. Believe in is different. Believe, the word there, and almost every time you see believe or faith, it's the word pistuo, which means to have confidence in. It means to entrust. It means to place your confidence in. So I don't know where you're watching. If you're watching, I'm assuming you're not standing up even at home, but I know that at our campuses, you're sitting in a chair. Now, over the last 10 years, I've kind of learned a lot about chairs, learned a lot about fabric, learned a lot about butt width, learned a lot about all that. Just, I'm telling you, we got 36, I'm just saying, all these different things. But you didn't think about that when you came in. You just came in and you sat down. So the posture you have right now is clear evidence that you had confidence in that chair because you're sitting in the chair. And that's the picture, what he's saying. He's saying, you have confidence, you put your trust, you sit down in the Lord Jesus. Don't just believe that. You believe in. You admit, I need Jesus to do for me what I could never do for myself. You can believe that until the... You can believe that all the way into a Christless eternity. But if you believe in, or you want to believe in, what do you say? You say, you know what? I need you to do for me what I cannot do for myself. I need you to save me. I need you to forgive me. I need you to adopt me. I need you to pay for my sin. I need you. I need you to do that. You don't need to know all this. You don't need to know all the finer points of theology. You don't need to know, I don't need to know, you don't need to know double imputation or penal substitutionary atonement. You don't need to know all that. All you need to know is I'm a sinner and I need Jesus to do for me what I cannot do. And what he did on that cross somehow, some way counted for me. And then you believe in the Lord Jesus. And what's amazing is when you believe in the Lord Jesus, the way that he then, he rescues you and then puts you on the rescue team. Because with the jailer, what happened? The whole family gets saved. Now, here's what's amazing about that is maybe your mom or maybe your dad and you didn't grow up in a Christian home. Do you understand? Do you understand you can be the first link of the chain of a whole different generation in your family? Do you realize you could be what's like you come to Christ today and all of a sudden Junior gets saved and then Junior's kids get saved when he's older, but it has to start back with you. So if you would, at every campus, just bow your heads, heads bowed and eyes closed.
heads bowed and eyes closed, please. And you're like, you know what, I, I believed that for a long time, but I don't know if I've ever believed in. I don't know if I've ever actually entrusted and put my confidence that, you know what, I need Jesus to do for me what I could never do for myself. I need Jesus to be the sin offering for me, substitute for me, to die in my place. And right where you are, if you would just uh, tell him in your own words, I believe that when you said, it is finished, that counted for me. I'm not the boss of me anymore. You're the boss of me. I surrender my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Just only if you just prayed that prayer, only if you just told that to God, if you just look at me, whatever campus you're at, just look at me for a second. Everybody else, keep your heads bowed, please. Just look at me for a second. Here's the deal. That's a commitment you just made. That's a, you just trusted Jesus. It says all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And whether you're in Brevard or Hendersonville or Arden or wherever you are, please do not walk out of a campus without telling somebody. If you're online, please tell us in the chat, I just gave my life to Christ. What do I do now? What do I do now? Christian, your head's bowed and your eyes are closed. Why don't you reaffirm, God, help me to be your spokesman, your spokeswoman in that place, in that school, in that neighborhood, in that town, in that subdivision, in that apartment complex. Just tell them that. Father, right now, thank you for uh, seeing, we can see ourselves in one of these three people, who we were, who we are. God, thanks for being the one who saves, the one who invites, the one who woos, the one that brings people to Christ. Thanks for letting us have a front row seat to that throughout these years. And as we kind of reboot and emerge, God, I pray that we would see that in ways that we can't even, Ephesians chapter 3 says, in ways that we can't even dream or imagine or even ask. So God, I pray the weeks ahead that you'd use the men and women that are already Christ followers in a great, phenomenal way. We got to also pray for the brand new believers that they would not let a minute go by without telling somebody, hey, I gave my life to Christ today. What do I do now? In Jesus' name, amen.